Today we'll be in Matthew 11, verses 20 through the end in verse 30. Come to Jesus. You know, I, I think this morning of when God called Moses from the burning bush to reveal himself to Moses. God told Moses to, to take off his sandals. The, the place on which you are standing is, is holy ground. I honestly feel like we need to take off our sandals this morning figuratively. We approach holy ground in our sermon text this morning. We approach the very heart of Jesus, our Savior. Charles Spurgeon pointed out how remarkable it is that in the 89 chapters of the four Gospels, and in fact in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, Matthew 11 is the only place that directly mentions the heart of Jesus. Certainly, there are other passages where his heart is, is intended, but, but there is only one mention of Jesus' heart, who he is at the very center of his being. I wonder, as we think of ourselves, if we took the layers of our hearts and, and peeled them away like an onion, what would we find in our hearts? What words would describe you at the very center of your being? What would you expect to find at the center of Jesus' being? What qualities best describe who He is, what He loves, what corresponds most naturally to His nature more than anything else? The verses we come to this morning are, are a pool. Its, its shallows refresh the young, but in its depths are, are pearls for which we hope to dive this morning. So let's prepare to dive deep into the heart of Jesus first by praying for God's help. So let's pray for God's help in our study of His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to You this morning as a people who, who labor and are heavy laden. And we look to You for rest from Your Word. Our flesh and the world wage war against our souls and the only place of refuge and refreshing is in you, God. So we pray, please reveal to us the glories of our calling Savior. May this be your gracious will. Do not let your word return to you empty, but accomplish what you purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Read with me, brothers and sisters, Matthew 11, starting in verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, 
And no one knows the Father except the Son, and, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus invites you this morning, come to me. I welcome you to receive rest for your souls by receiving Jesus. That's our big idea this morning. Come to Jesus, who invites you to receive rest for your souls by rescuing you from the day of judgment. Come to Jesus, who invites you to receive rest for your souls by rescuing you from the day of judgment. Here we find at the depth of Jesus' heart that He is gentle and lowly. He invites everyone to escape certain coming judgment in, in Him. He Himself gives us rest for our souls with an easy yoke and a light burden. Come to Jesus who invites you to receive rest for your souls by rescuing you from the day of judgment. We'll have two points this morning, the the two paragraphs of our text, centered around the the two great duties of our text in light of the heart of Jesus. So first, repent, because Jesus, sorry, because judgment is coming, that in verses 20 through 24, and second, rest, because Jesus is calling, that in verses 25 through 30. So first, repent, because judgment is coming, and second, rest, because Jesus is calling. Repent and rest. Look back with me at verse 20 and the start of our first point. Repent because judgment is coming. Well, our text picks up right on the heels of what Jesus has been saying in the week uh, that we studied last week. So it'll help us to remember how we ended. Right Last week we saw that John had doubts about Jesus. That he had expectations of Jesus that weren't being met. John's confusion, we found, was coming from his expectations that Jesus was going to bring judgment immediately. But there John was, sitting in prison, hearing that Jesus was just healing and teaching. Well, Jesus, in reply, affirms, yes, he is the expected one. Take a look at all the miracles he's performing, fulfillment of prophecy. And, contrary to John's expectation, Jesus did not come to bring immediate judgment. But now we have these verses in 20 through 24 where he expects judgment. Judgment is coming. Judgment, though delayed, is coming. We have in verse 20 Matthew's introduction to Jesus' words, his commentary on them. And Matthew here tells us that Jesus' words are targeted to some particular cities. And he helps us understand why these cities. Well, it's the cities where he had done most of his mighty works, his miracles. The miracles that give testimony to who he is. Yes, the expected one. We haven't seen Matthew yet mention this first city, Chorazin. But we know its neighbor, Bethsaida, is, is the hometown of three of Jesus' disciples. Capernaum, the the second city he mentions there in verse 23, is Jesus' own home base for his ministry. These are the cities of Galilee where Jesus has been doing his ministry. 
You'll remember a summary of Jesus' ministry back in Matthew 4.23, where it says, And he went through all Galilee, Chorazin, Messiah, Capernaum, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So the cities that Jesus denounced here have, have seen all the miracles. They've heard all the teaching that Matthew has been reporting for us in this gospel. They've seen this evidence that Jesus reported to John. He said, tell him what you have seen. The signs that Jesus is in fact the expected one. The Messiah. Well, how does Jesus in these verses speak of these cities' response to seeing and hearing what he has proclaimed? In verse 21, woe. Woe to these cities. He pronounces woe, distress, and sorrow on them. And after these warnings, woe to them, he gives explanation in the rest of verse 21. For if, if these mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Tyre and Sidon, the cities he mentions here in verse 21, are, are infamous in the Old Testament for the judgment pronounced on them, particularly for their worship of, of Baal, their refusal to worship Yahweh. In other words, the comparison here is, is not a good comparison. As evil as Tyre and, and Sidon are, are they, they would have repented had they seen these mighty works of Jesus that, that these cities of Galilee had seen. And he says the same of Capernaum down in verse 23. But now compared to, to Sodom. Sodom we, we know well. We recently preached through the destruction of, of Sodom in Genesis 19. We remember Moses described that city as wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And that's probably putting it mildly. But as evil as Sodom was, Jesus says here that Sodom would have remained to this day if the mighty works done in Capernaum had been done there, had they had the opportunity, they would have repented. So he's saying what these cities should have done, confronted with the evidence, is seen there in verse 20 in in Matthew's introduction. They should have repented. They're denounced because they did not repent. That word repent means to to change one's mind. It's a turning from one thought and action to another. It's it's a 180 degree turn. It's an about face. So seeing Jesus' miracles, they should have repented. But they didn't. They should have changed their opinion on on who He is and therefore how they should align themselves with Him. They should have seen Him not only as the Messiah, but as as Lord, as God in the flesh, worthy of worship and, and adoration and absolute loyalty. They should have abandoned their ongoing rebellion against God in sin. And it should have looked like their wholehearted submission to God's Word. When we were studying Jonah just a few weeks ago, I was struck at how well the the king of Assyria illustrates this kind of repentance. You remember, when when the king of Assyria hears the message of Jonah, the destruction that that God is bringing, he repents. Jonah 3, verses 6 through 10, the word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. 
And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. That is what is offered to these cities. That God will relent the disaster that he has promised on the day of judgment if they will repent. If they will turn from their evil ways. And that, at the preaching of someone far greater than Jonah, at Jesus. You know, Jesus says that, that even Tyre and Sidon would have put on sackcloth and satin ashes, exactly what the king of Nineveh did in, in Jonah. Sackcloth was, was uncomfortable. It, ashes, besides being dirty, were a sign of destruction and, and sorrow. It's an outward demonstration of an inward posture of the heart. The heart in humility, of recognition that what God says is true. And sorrow for our sins. So repentance is grief for sin. Not because you broke God's rules, but because you broke God's heart. Because sin is a personal offense against a holy and good God. But repentance is more than just grief for sin. You can feel sad for sin, even that it's a personal offense against a good God, and and not repent. You can recognize that sin is wrong and, and not repent. Repentance requires a turning, a change produced by that grief. It's to take God's side against sin like the king of Nineveh did. Not sin's side against God. You know, there are only two types of people in this world. And it's not sin that separates us. No, every person excluding Jesus sins. And and more than that, every person is born with a sinful nature. So no, it's not sin that divides us. But still, there are two types of people in this world. Those who repent of sin and those who do not. You know, Christians, those who gather this morning to worship Jesus, are not those who, who've stopped sinning. No, as, as long as we're in this world, we will continue to sin. Now, what separates us and from everyone else and from our old selves is the fact that we repent of sin. We have, we continue to repent of our sins. The only saving and right response to seeing Jesus for who He is, is to repent. And it is the only rescue from coming judgment. Look back at our passage in verses 22 and 24. Jesus tells these cities, these Galileans, what what await them because they do not repent. He tells us what awaits all who do not repent. He says, the day of judgment. The day of judgment. Though judgment is delayed, judgment is coming. 
Jesus predicts that this day of judgment will come. It's, it's not today. The day that Jesus lives is the, the era of salvation, of the opportunity to repent. But that opportunity will close one day. And it might be today. At the end of time, judgment comes. You know, in, in Christian, this is just another way of saying that God is good. Because God is radically committed to good, He cannot even look at evil, Habakkuk says. Because God is good, He will one day judge and destroy all evil. To not do otherwise, or to do otherwise would mean that He is not good. You know, this includes natural evil, like cancer and hurricanes. But it also includes moral evil, our anger and idolatry. Our greed and selfishness. Our good God will one day bring an end to all evil at the day of judgment. And so Jesus is saying to these cities, because they have not repented, they will be destroyed with their evil on that day of judgment. They will be brought down to Hades, he says, the the place of eternal death, hell. What couldn't be more clear is the fact, brothers and sisters, is that we need to repent. We need to secure it without delay. Every time I have opportunity to teach on repentance, I will quote to you Martin Luther's first thesis of his 95. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Repentance is not a one-time act, Christian. It is a lifestyle. The Christian is in the habit of frequently confessing sin and repenting of them to God in prayer. You know, Jesus taught us to pray daily, forgive us our debts. And this is the culture that we want to have in this church. A culture of repentance. A culture of people who are quick to acknowledge, to to mourn and turn away from our sin. That's why each week as we gather, we have a a corporate confession of sin. And we conclude it with the the rock-solid assurance of forgiveness from God's mouth, His Word, not ours. You know, a church full of people who, who frequently humble themselves before God in repentance will be a church full of people who are humble before one another. We'll take our own sin and one another's sin seriously. But we'll also know how to deal gently with others' sins. Because we ourselves know we are beset with weakness. But this lifestyle must have a beginning. It is continual, but it must have a start. So I'd say if you're joining us today and you don't have a lifestyle of repentance through a true knowledge of Jesus, thank you for being with us this morning. Hear Jesus today. Judgment is coming. Repent today. Don't put it off because you might not get another chance. You know, when when Jesus was crucified, he was crucified with, with two other criminals. One of those men, in the last hour of his life, repented. And Jesus promised him that today you will be with me in paradise. Assurance of forgiveness. 
But the other man did not repent. It's observed that one man was converted in his last hour that no man might despair. It is not too late for you to repent. But only one man was converted that no man might presume as if you'll have opportunity later when it's more convenient. No, do not presume. Repent today. Let me warn you. And the Christians here too who are flirting with sin and and not fleeing from it. Every day you wait to repent, it gets harder. It's like pouring a cup of concrete mix into a five-gallon bucket of water. A little bit won't hurt, but the more you do it, eventually you have a bucket of concrete. The teacher, uh, preacher J.C. Ryle put it this way, habits are like stones rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more ungovernable is their course. Habits like trees are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it's a sapling. A hundred men cannot root it up when it is a full-grown tree. So it is with habits. The older, the stronger. The longer they have held possession, the harder they will be to cast out. As hard as it might seem, brother, sister... To confess and repent of sin today, it is the easiest it will ever be. I'd encourage you to to stay tuned to the rest of what Jesus says this morning. Jesus is a gentle and lowly Savior who reveals the Father. He invites all to come to Him to receive rest for their souls. So Jesus, who warns of judgment in these verses, also invites us to rest. So let's look at the the second half of our passage and our second point. Rest because Jesus is calling. Rest because Jesus is calling. After warning of coming judgment, Jesus points to Himself as the rescue from that judgment. And He invites all people to come to Him for the rest. But first, in verse 25... He prays. What will he say to God the Father in in light of these Galileans not seeing who he is? Verse 25. At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. After all the warnings, he praises God. He thanks God for hiding And revealing these things. You note he calls God Father. As he taught us to pray. And and gives him the title of Lord of heaven and earth. A title of of absolute authority. He is Lord of, of everything in all of creation. Heaven and earth. Lord above every other Lord. So as sovereign. He is free to conceal and reveal according to his will. That's what he goes on in verse 26 to say. Such was your gracious will. Or this was your good pleasure. It pleased God as Lord of heaven and earth to do as he wills. You know, when he talks about these things being concealed or or revealed, he's not talking about the miracles themselves. No, No, those things were seen. He did those things in public. He taught on a mountain so lots of people could hear. Now, what is hidden and revealed Is their significance. What they say about Jesus. The one performing them. They are signposts. 
to Jesus. But not everyone can read the sign. The long-expected messianic age is unfolding right before their eyes, and it's hardly noticed. Make no mistake, Jesus' language here in verse 25 is very strong. You might find no verse stronger than what Jesus says here in his prayer. The cities of Galilee, condemned to hell, don't repent and see because they are hidden by God the Father. You have hidden these things. This is a a tough question. Why is it that some people don't repent? What does Jesus mean when he says the Father has hidden from some and revealed to others? Well, maybe you run to other places in the Bible that help you answer that question. You might think of 2 Corinthians 4.4. Paul says, The God of this world, that is Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So maybe that's what's happening in Galilee. Satan has blinded the minds. Or you might think of Paul in Ephesians 4.18 where the cause is the heart. Paul writes there, they, that is unbelievers, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Well, they have no understanding of who Jesus is because of the stubbornness of their heart. It's it's their fault. So now we have three causes. Men's stubborn hearts, Satan's blinding, God's hiding. What, What do we do with this? Well, the first thing we have to do is that the Bible does not contradict itself. We have to affirm that the Bible does not contradict itself. Whatever it means, all these do fit together. They are not three competing truths. Which one will win out in the rivalry? But I think we can say more than that. Not just that they, that they fit together, but a bit about how they fit together. And I think one of the best illustrations of of how the agency of of man, of Satan, and God fit together is in the book of Job. Job, a wealthy man, loses everything he has because of of natural disasters and and evil men. They, They kill and steal. So, okay, there's one of our answers. You might say the cause is men's hardened hearts. Men in their sin are to blame. But then you remember... Before any of this happened, it was Satan who was plotting Job's demise. Satan was responsible too. Well, of course, that leads you to the final cause. Satan had to get permission from God before he could touch Job. And he could do no more than God allowed. Job himself recognizes this. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Well, what about Satan? What about the evil men? Didn't they take away? Well, just like Jesus, Job is using very active language to describe God. Like God has hidden in Matthew 11, now God has taken away. But our job is to peel back the layers. And we see that God was not active in taking from Job. He merely lifted his protection. No, it was Satan's malice. And the wicked parties that took from Job. And I think this helps us understand what what Jesus means here. And how it fits with Paul's blaming Satan and, and evil men for the same thing. 
God does not force anyone to reject Christ. Just like he didn't force Satan or force the evil men to raid Job despite their wills, right? They didn't do something against their own wills. No, he just gave them over to their own sinful dispositions. He stops restraining them in their evil ways. Including the evil ways we see of these Galilean cities. Continued rejection of Christ. You know, God doesn't have to create unbelief or wickedness in us, sinful people. It's all already there. He isn't dealing with neutral human beings who can go one way or the other, depending on how he acts. He just has to let us go. He is dealing with sinful people to whom he owes nothing. You know that's true, brothers and sisters. God doesn't owe revelation to anyone. For God to hide himself only requires him to let us be as we are. And this is not an act of injustice, but perfect justice. Giving us what our sins deserve. This is what we all deserve from God, to be blind to who he really is. It says, Romans 1.28 says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You know what the marvel of this prayer really is, is that God shows mercy to any. Though he does not owe revelation to anyone, he does not give us all the justice we deserve. To some, as he wills, he gives mercy. To some, as as Jesus says, God reveals. And you notice, he says that, that God hides from the wise and understanding, but reveals to little children. No, he's not talking about the number of your degrees, nor your physical age here. The the wise and understanding are those who see themselves as self-sufficient, as wise in their own sight. Children, then, would be those who know they need to be taught, who know themselves to be dependent on others, on God for their need. So I wonder this morning, Christian, do you have the attitude... Of the wise in your own sight or of the child? Whether you're seven or seventy, do you love to receive instruction? Do people describe you as teachable no matter how much you've already learned? Are you child enough to delight in what your father delights in? You know, Jesus, far from finding fault with God, gives thanks to God. He delights that God does this. And he recognizes that that God delights in it. This was your gracious will, your good pleasure. It pleased God to do this. And it accomplished his will. To some, Jesus remains hidden. To some, Jesus is revealed. Jesus moves from his prayer in verses 25 and 26 to addressing his, his claim that he is in relationship with his father in verse 27. And I think to help us understand more about how God the Father reveals. Verse 27 is one of the clearest claims we have that Jesus is divine, equal to the Father. He says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. 
I think specifically in context he means authority to reveal the Father. God has given that authority to His Son. But elsewhere we we learn that it also means authority to judge. That Jesus is judge. That the Father has given Him authority to judge. He goes on to say that that no one knows the, the Son, that is Jesus, He's speaking of Himself, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Just pausing there, the, the Son and the Father have mutual knowledge of one another because they are one triune God. Jesus is claiming here a knowledge equal to that of His Father. He is claiming to be equal to God the Father. And it's statements like this that got Him killed. But He adds there that He has authority to reveal. The Son chooses to reveal the Father. That now Jesus is the exclusive agent of giving knowledge of the Father. It's as he said to Philip when he asked, when Philip asked to see the Father, John 14, 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because Jesus is the very image of the Father with authority to reveal him, anyone who has seen him has seen the Father. And he invites all people to see him. Look again at verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Saints, the invitation this morning is to come to rest because Jesus is calling after what might be some of the strongest verses in the Bible of God's sovereignty and salvation, that is verses 25 through 27, we now have some of the strongest verses in the Bible on man's responsibility. Verses 28 through 30. Come, come, he says to you. Notice who he invites. All. He doesn't ask you to figure out first, am I chosen by God? No. All receive the call. All are invited. Come. You are invited to come to Jesus. He calls those who labor and are heavy laden. Those who see themselves as tired and needy. All you need, all He requires of you is to feel your need of Him. Are you tired? Of your labor to please God by your obedience? Are you heavy laden by the rules that you hope will make you right with God? Are you burdened by shame and guilt? Dread of a demanding deity? Well, notice what he commands just to come. Take and learn will follow, but first come. It is an act of faith, not more labor. It is to receive Jesus as He comes to you in His invitation. And it is to approach Him as you are. And notice what He promises, saints. I will give you rest. Come and I will give you rest. Rest 
from labors, relief, from burdens. Normally, when we try to come to God, we we try to work our way to Him. We try to live good lives. We attend church. We clean up our language. We give generously, all with the hopes that our work, that our good deeds will make us acceptable to God so that we can approach Him. We can come to Him. Friends, Jesus says the very opposite. He gives rest as a gift. Not what we deserve. Not because of works done by us, but because of His grace. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. The the good news of the gospel is that Jesus did all the work for us. He labored perfectly in love for God and neighbor for 33 years of a faithful, quiet life. And the credit for those labors can be yours if you just come. Come to Him in faith. Jesus on the cross took on Himself our sins, dying in our place, suffering the justice that our sins deserve, the day of judgment into history, so that when that day of judgment comes, we might be rescued. Now we can have rest by faith in Jesus Christ. We can receive His righteous standing before God, given to us by faith. And we no longer labor to be loved, but receive His love as a gift. And let me tell you, if you have ears to hear that as good news, if you embrace God as Father, not as judge, it's because Jesus has chosen to reveal the Father to you. Many are called But few are chosen. And now he goes on in verse 29 in that rest to take up his yoke. Yokes were placed on animals during their labors to to pull plows or, or wagons. We have labor, yes, but his yoke, he says, is easy. We have a burden, yes, but it is light. 1 John 5, 3, his commandments are not burdensome. Those who have received rest from Jesus now labor in that rest. We rest in service. We rest in learning. If you are in Christ now, you learn from Him. By His Word, by His Spirit, with His people. He is the teacher. And what does our teacher call Himself in verse 29? But gentle and lowly in heart. We could easily spend weeks considering just these two words, gentle and lowly, and still have more pearls to die for after those weeks. So let me recommend a book to you. Dane Ortland wrote an excellent book called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. A whole book meditating on just those two ideas, that Jesus is gentle and lowly. I read it last year and it instantly became one of my favorite books of all time. And our church has, has generously, uh, has received a generous donation of copies for, for every member. So we have a handful of copies available for you out in the lobby. Please take one and meditate on this truth for weeks and months to come. Next summer, Lord willing, we'll have a, a whole Sunday school class on this topic, the gentle and lowly heart of Jesus. The one time, saints, the one and only time Jesus speaks of his own heart He doesn't call himself austere and demanding in heart. 
He doesn't call himself cold and distant in heart. The one who has all things from the Father isn't even exalted and dignified in heart. He could have said that he is joyful and generous in heart. No, the the one time that the Son of God himself pulls back the veil and lets us peer down into the core of who he is, his surprising claim is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. In his book, Dane draws this out for us. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Friends, what could keep us from coming to this Jesus? When Jesus invites us to come to him to receive rest, he does so with open arms. He has come to bring salvation. One day he will come to bring judgment, but now he is open to all who will receive him. Dane goes on, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all the resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. Friends, this morning, come to the one who is more approachable than anyone else in human history. Your sins do not deter Jesus. That is precisely why he came to seek and save the lost. The well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. No, it brings our gentle and lowly Savior delight with his Father to reveal his saving mercies to any and to all. You know, the Bible never says that God has to be provoked to love. It says that he has to be provoked to anger. But never once does it say that he needs to be provoked to love or provoked to mercy. No, Jesus in his invitation is saying that divine mercy is ready to burst forth from him at the slightest prick. Dane, one last time, he is a fountain of mercy. He is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And the withdrawals we make as we sin our way through life cause his fortune to grow greater, not less. Brothers and sisters, this is who our Savior is. Gentle and lowly in heart. And Jesus reveals to us our triune God. Our triune God is a God of holy love. Our God is pent up with mercy to forgive the sins of any who will come. Come, he says. Does your heart not long to come to him for new mercies every day? The Savior says, come to me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And he gives us rest that we can find nowhere else in all creation. So let that be the message this morning, brothers and sisters. Come to Jesus. By faith, draw near to him. Whether for the thousandth time or if you've refused him a thousand times, acknowledge your sin to him. 
despise it as evil and turn away from it to God's abundant mercy. And he will abundantly pardon. He promises you, brother, sister, rest for your soul. No more labors to justify yourself to God. He will rescue you from the day of judgment. Repent because judgment is coming. Rest because Jesus is calling. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we magnify your name. That Jesus Christ, our Savior, reveals you as one who is gentle and lowly in heart. Father, that your invitation is for all to come, to come to receive rest, a gift that we could never earn by our own labor, labors. You say, come, receive. Father, this morning by faith, we take your yoke upon us. We receive your burden that is easy and light. Lord, I pray that our hearts would find rest in Jesus, that his gentle and lowly heart would minister to us. Lord, that we would invite all to come, to be spared from the day of judgment, from the rest, in the rest that is found in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray this, to his glory. Amen.